0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ackman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today I want to do what is about a semi-annual update on marriage. Because one of the major themes of Issues in Perspective is the centrality of marriage as an institution. The health of this most basic of all institutions says much about the health of the larger culture. At least that's my opinion. In this perspective, I want to provide an update on the health of marriage in 2011 in the United States. First of all, we have long known that the birth control pill has not been positive for marriage in America. The research and conclusions of Mark Regneris, who is teaching at the University of Virginia, a sociologist there, most helpful in seeing the connection between the pill and the health of marriage in America. Before the advent of birth control pills, sex and marriage were closely linked. Premarital sex was much less common Because women typically insisted on a commitment of marriage before having sex. And men often were willing to make that commitment. But that link is now broken. Sex without marriage is common. For in the words of Agneris, the price of sex is pretty low. Low commitment or really no commitment in terms of sexual hookups are common. While high commitment is postponed. That is marriage often for decades, because women now are marrying much later, often into their 30s. They're better educated and financially more autonomous. Therefore, men are no longer as essential to the welfare of a family, at least that's how women often look at it, because in one very real sense, men are becoming obsolete, especially to those women who are independent and quite autonomous. That fact, is shown by the following statistical comparison. In 1986, only 27% of women in their late 20s were still unmarried. In 2009, that statistic jumped to 47%. For men of all races, they're likely to be married until they're in their 30s, while black men often wait until their age between 35 and 39 to get married. There is a lot of impact when it comes to the birth control pill, and it's disconnecting sexual activity in marriage. You no longer need to be married to have the sexual experience on a regular basis. Secondly, for the first time in American history, married couples have dropped below 50% of American households. Married couples represent just 48% of American households, a drop from 78% of American households in the year 1950. According to a recent report by the Brookings Institution, as women moved into the workforce, cohabitation lost its taboo label, and as society has grown more secular, marriage has lost some of its central authority. Throughout most of American history, and this would go all the way back to the colonial period, marriage defined gender roles, family life, and a person's place in society. That truth no longer seems to apply. Women with college degrees are now more likely to marry than those with just high school diplomas, the reverse of several decades ago. The new pattern for college-educated women seems to be marrying later in life and then staying married. By contrast, women with only a high school diploma are increasingly opting not to marry the fathers of their children, whose fortunes have declined along with the nation's economic opportunities. In addition, demographics are affecting the state of marriage. Americans obviously are living longer than ever, so households now include a growing number of elderly singles. Finally, other changes in the state of marriage include 41 states, That showed declines in traditional households of married couples with children. In 2000, married couples with children were fewer than 20% of all households in just one state, plus the District of Columbia. Now, they are less than one-fifth in 31 states. Overall, the largest change for the decade was the jump in households headed by women without husbands. It's up 18% in the decade. Finally marketing and promotional specialists understand something that is also affecting the situation, the health, and the stability of marriage. That statistic, that fact, is that 85% of the buying decisions in the United States are made by women. Apparently the purse strings of the American economy are held by women, and for that reason some, with tongue-in-cheek, are now calling America the she-economy. Women today are not only the chief purchasing officers of the culture, they now make up about half of the workforce. 49.9% of all non-farm labor jobs are female. 51.5% of high-paying management and professional positions are female. In addition, college graduation rates indicate that these percentages will only grow. For every two men who graduate from college, three women graduate from college. Belinda Lescom, who argued in a very important study that was published in Time magazine recently, writes this, quote, "'Wives' education and earning power have changed.'" the relationship they have with their family finances as well as in their families. It's not his money she's spending, it's their money, or sometimes it's just her money. Similarly, the one-way relationship between consumers and the mainstream media has been overturned by social networking. Women, and in some cases men as well, don't have to wait for the attention of media. They're taking their stories straight to the public, and the media are following them on Facebook, on all the social networking and Twitter and things like that. Midas, for example, and Best Buy, both major corporations, have discovered that steering their business toward women is less like changing the oil, more like reinventing the light bulb. She goes on, this has transformed the relationships that corporations and companies have with their customers letting them see more of the guts of the operation, and weighing in on changes. It's remarkable. Women now are the primary consumers, 85%, plus almost all marketing, all public relations, all focus in terms of how you advertise is directed now toward women because they make the major decisions. Well, what does all this mean for the health of the American family? These three items that I've summarized very quickly in this perspective, the birth control pill, married couples have dropped below 50% of American households, and that women now are the primary movers in the American economy. It certainly is not evil that women are attaining high levels of education, better paying jobs, and making 85% of all the buying decisions. That's not evil. That's not a sin. The challenge though, is the effect all this has on men. God has designed the role relationships between men and women, and it's very clearly stated in Scripture. And as men fail in their roles, and they have failed miserably, broadly speaking, throughout American culture, women will naturally pick up the slack. Men today are more confused and more disoriented than ever. Women are redefining their roles as well. This, the often negative impact of all this change on the family is another natural result. In the long run, at least in my opinion, examining and looking at this and thinking about this from the biblical perspective, it's difficult to see this as positive, that all of these developments are positive when it comes to the health of that most basic of all institutions, the family. Dear people, we've lost our way. And men primarily have failed in so many ways in being what God wants them to be in their families as the leaders, as the husbands, as the providers, and as the prime movers of a God-oriented family. So women will take up the slack. We are living in a very dysfunctional situation in our culture, and it's hard to see a lot of these developments as positive In our second perspective on the program today, I'd like to think with you about two intellectuals and God. Intellectuals often have a real struggle with the idea and existence of God. Atheism, or at best agnosticism, are frequently the standard worldview for the intellectual. Two recent examples highlight this sad pattern. First is Christopher Hitchens. I've talked about him before on the program. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens, a well-known writer and commentator, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. So difficult has his battle with cancer been that he can no longer talk, for the most part. He remains committed to his worldview of atheism, however. He has no regrets and blames much of the world's difficulties actually on religion in all its forms. For Hitchens, God, or any kind of a belief in God, is petty. God is vindictive, the vindictive God of the gloaters, he often says. He despises the self-righteousness of religious people, especially Christians, who gloat. That is, he has blasphemed God all his life. Now God has taken away his voice. That's what one Christian said to him. But he has also seen true biblical Christianity at work. Countless believers have told him they are praying for him. He has befriended Dr. Francis Collins, a noted evangelical who's also director of the Human Genome Project. Collins was one of his doctors, actually. Hitchin needs to come to terms with the God who is not vindictive, but who is experiencing the second person of the Trinity, all the hate, all the bitterness and vindictiveness of rebellious humanity. That same man, the God-man Jesus Christ, became a victim of horrific evil, so that he might eradicate evil from this planet. God has taken the most eloquent of public speakers and writers, Christopher Hitchens, and made it possible for him to listen. May Hitchens embrace the God who loves him, who died for him, and is reaching out to him. Please pray for Christopher Hitchens. Many people are, including his brother, who has put his faith in Christ. My prayer is that before he dies, presumably of this cancer, that Christopher Hitchens will place his hand in the hand of Jesus Christ. A second intellectual is Stephen Hawking. For 21 years, uh, since 21 years of age, physicist Stephen Hawking has lived with a motor neuron disease. Many believe it's ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Others are not so sure. But the point is, he has been disabled as a result of this motor neuron disease uh, since he was 21 years old. He's perhaps one of the most famous scientists alive today. For years, he held the chair at Cambridge University in England that was once held by Sir Isaac Newton. Brilliant, witty, and driven, Hawkins is a remarkable scientist. His book, uh, a number of years ago, uh, focused on a brief history of time, focused on all of his theories and ideas about the universe. And in it, he talked about God, obviously in a broad sense, but he talked about God. Yet in his new book, The Grand Design, you see a purely secular worldview coming to the surface. His worldview has no place for God. His atheism is profound and in my view, naively arrogant. Listen to some of the things that he said, most of it as a result of an interview he had in England. It was reported by the London newspaper The Guardian. Number one, these are his statements from this interview. I have lived with the prospect of an early death for nearly 49 years. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do. Secondly, he says... I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven, there is no afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. In another interview, he rejected the, the, motion, the notion of life beyond death and emphasized the need to fulfill our potential on earth. He says we need to make good use of our lives. We should seek the greatest value of our actions, he said. But there's no standards for that. What does he mean by that? But that's his point. Number four, he says, when asked what is the value of knowing why we are here, he responded, the universe is governed by science, Hawking said. Science tells us we can't solve the equations directly in abstract. We need to use the effective theory of Darwinian natural selection of those societies most likely to survive. We assign them higher value. Finally, when asked about God as the creator, as the sustainer, he responded, Science predicts that many different kinds of universe will be spontaneously created out of nothing. It's a matter of chance which we are in. So, obviously, from these very limited quotes in an interview he did, as well as from his book, Stephen Hawking has als or something very similar to it a severe motor neuron disease been disabled in a wheelchair cannot talk has to be aided and assisted almost everything that he does since he was 21 years of age still rejects god still sees as a part of his worldview a thoroughly secular worldview Everything around us is a product of science, and the only way you can understand what is in nature is through the discipline of science. He is a scientist, and he has no room for God. For Stephen Hawking, his God is science, and the supreme aspect of life is his mind. When he dies, he expects non-existence to follow. The physical world which he has studied all his life is all there is. It seems to me that Paul's words in Romans 1 apply perfectly to Stephen Hawking as one who, these are the words in Romans, suppresses the truth about God in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's a quote from Romans 1. For 49 years, Stephen Hawking has been studying about God through his scientific study, yet he refuses to acknowledge him. Pray for Stephen Hawking, Pray that the God that he has studied all his life will be seen as his Savior and his Lord. May God have mercy on Stephen Hawking. In our third and final perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about the scandal of co-ed dormitories on our college campuses. I recently read an op-ed essay in the Wall Street Journal by John Garvey, of the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C. I was absolutely stunned by a statistic that Garvey cited in his essay. More than 90% of college housing in the United States is now co-ed. Let me put that another way. 90% of the dormitories on the colleges and campuses of this school, of this country, are co-ed dormitories and that means that men and women live together in the same halls there are not segregated dorms ninety percent of the colleges and universities of the united states of america now have co-ed dormitories common sense tells me that this is not a good thing for our culture what are we saying to our young people the next generation of leaders about values, about virtue, about sex. It seems logical to me that we're saying there is no relationship to how you live while in college and how you will live as a husband or a wife or a dad or a mother. That we have 90% of our college housing as co-ed living is a moral and ethical disaster in my judgment. In this essay, Dr. Garvey cites several connections between co-ed living in our dormitories and other social dysfunctions. Let me summarize them. Students in co-ed dorms, 41.5%, report weekly binge drinking more than twice as often as students living in single-sex housing, 17%. Students in co-ed housing are more likely than students in single-sex dormitories to have had a sexual partner in the last year, and more than twice as likely to have had three or more. Then, Garvey cites in his essay the connections between these statistics and other stunning statistics in the United States. Alcohol-related accidents are the leading cause of death for young adults ages 17 to 24. That's college-age adults. Students who engage in binge drinking, about 2 and 5, are 25 times more likely to do things like miss class, fall behind in schoolwork, engage in unplanned sexual activity, and get in trouble with the law. They often cause trouble for other students who are subjected to physical and sexual assault, suffer property damage, and, of course, interrupted sleep, and often end up then babysitting problem drinkers on campus. Further, hooking up is as common as drinking. One study, Garvey cites, reports that 40 to 64 percent of college students report hooking up, that's sexual activity, Rates of depression reach 20% for young women who have had two or more sexual partners in the last year. Almost double the rate for women who have had none. Sexually active young men do more poorly than abstainers in their academic work. Obviously, sex on those terms is destructive of love and marriage. Now, here was the shocker as I read his essay. For all these reasons... Garvey, the president of Catholic University of America, has decided that his university will end co-ed dormitory living. I was very pleased to hear of that decision. Garvey is taking a bold step in restoring one of the most important functions of a college education to teach and model virtue and an ethical lifestyle than to help the future leaders of tomorrow understand that there are profound consequences to the choices they make while they're in college. We do not need any more studies or research. The evidence is clear. What God has been saying in his word for nearly 5,000 years remains true. Sexual abstinence before marriage is the wisest sexual choice to make. The colleges and universities of our nation have been fostering a self-destructive lifestyle on these campuses. We should not be surprised with the results we are now seeing. I gained an enormous amount of respect for John Garvey, the president of Catholic University of America. He sees the social dysfunction, the utter destructive results of co-ed dormitory living, And he's going to make a change at his school. I'm president of a school that does not have co-ed dormitories. We will never have co-ed dormitories as long as I'm in any kind of position of leadership. Everything I see in the Bible and everything I see in a self-evident, common-sense manner in our culture indicates that is not a wise way to run a college. But 90% of our campuses in this nation have co-ed dormitory living. It is time for leaders like John Garvey and many, many others to take the bold step and end this experiment. It's an utter and absolute failure, and the binge drinking and hookup culture that goes with it is hardly a positive, and it's hardly a positive way to prepare the next generation of leaders. It is time across this nation for presidents and leaders to say it is time to end This experiment in co-ed dormitory living, it is a disaster. We need leaders to say it and then take the bold steps to end it.